Hello and welcome to The Sacred. This is a podcast about our divisive public conversations, how we can overcome our own tribalisms and what it means to build real relationships across difference. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. In every episode, I talk to someone involved in some way in public debates, from campaigners to journalists, academics to politicians, comics to novelists, and ask them what they hold sacred, what has formed them, and what they've learned about connecting with people who belong, behave, and believe differently from themselves. And we believe that having these kind of empathetic, emotionally intelligent conversations about and across difference helps us all better navigate our diversity and contributes to a healthier common life. So we're really grateful to all of those who've been rating, reviewing, and sharing the podcast so that other people can find it in these divisive times. Thank you so much, and do keep it up. In this episode, I talked to Andrew Copson. Andrew is Chief Executive of Humanists UK, previously the BHA, and was prior to that Director of Education and Public Affairs at the same organisation. He's also President of the International Humanist and Ethical Union, the global umbrella body for atheist, humanist, sceptic and secularist organisations. We spoke about his childhood in the Midlands, his sacred value of freedom, family and community, and how Blair's backing of faith schools in the late 90s felt like a betrayal of identity. This is actually the third attempt at recording this podcast due to repeated technical incompetence on my part. So I'm grateful to Andrew for being willing to speak to me, not just once, but three times. I think it's been well worth the wait and I hope you enjoy listening too. Andrew, let's kick off with that big question about sacred values or just values if you prefer, which are things that we hold very dear principles we try and live by, and that when they're compromised, uh, we can feel strongly, a strong kind of instinctive gut reaction against that, that something's not right. Do you have a sense of what yours might be? The first thing I think to say is that there's certainly nothing religious about any of the values that I have, or not, 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 not to my mind. I think because of that word sacred, it's just important to say that I didn't have any religious upbringing, so I don't have any um, religious roots to the things that I value now, very non-religious upbringing. Um, family, parents, grandparents, all non-religious. So thinking about where my values came from, I've realised that they came very much from my upbringing, from my family, from the place, the community that I was from. The first thing that I think I do feel strongly committed to and do sort of shudder or feel quite emotional about being violated is the idea of freedom. And I think that sounds like quite a big concept, actually. And, you know, I, so let me explain what I mean by that, because I don't think people can be, you know, so intensely uh, attracted to abstract concepts. I think it has to mean something. For me, it's about the individual having space, the individual having uh, the opportunity to develop and to grow and to, de- you know, to try and reach their ceiling. That's obviously very important to me, because I think that um, if personal completeness or integrity is possible, then it has to happen obviously in this life. I don't think that uh, you can reach a ceiling in any other place. I think it has to be here. Um, and so I think that's very important to me. There's a there's a, a big struggle always going on. And this was part, I remember when I started working at Humanist UK, the first thing I was working on as public affairs officer was the Equality Act. And there's a big debate then about the great balance between freedom on the one hand and equality, uh, equal treatment on on the other. And so I've struggled with this because I do also believe in equality. Um, but I think, I mean, being completely honest with myself, I believe in, in the individual slightly more. Um, 
And well, maybe we'll unpack that and talk about it more. It's, uh, it's not uncomplicated. I don't have uncomplicated feelings about that thing that I apparently uh, seem to hold very dear. Um, but I do, uh, and I frankly admit it, uh, that I do care a lot about the individual. And I'm quite attracted to the eccentric or the unusual or the person or the person who goes against the flow or, um, you know, uh, doubts um, uh, and grows because of it. So freedom. And then the second thing, and this is something I've only realised quite recently um, that's quite important to me and almost has that sort of, uh, has a venerable place in my own personal array of values, is the idea of family. Now, very recently, um, I've had a lot of bereavements. In fact, all my family have died in the last couple of years, apart from uh, me and my mother. Um, and so it's thrown it into sharp relief, the, the extent to which I've personally... Um, benefited from, you know, very stable, loving, uh, supportive, uh, emotionally nourishing and empowering background. You know, when I was uh, born, uh, I still had a lot of great grandparents. I still had two great grandmothers until I was at university and grandparents, mother and, and, and a wide family network, as well as a very stable wider community as well in the town that I was from. Um, and I really value that. Uh, I don't think I just do value it now suddenly because it's gone. Um, I think I also valued it at the time. Um, but looking back at the things that shaped me um, and the things that I therefore, uh, you know, made my character what it is today, I think that family was one of them and I give it a consequent importance now in my mind. Um, and I think also the more you meet people who haven't had that uh, advantage um, and the more you see differences in people's uh, experiences, the more you appreciate that yourself. Um, I'm not, you know, family is a difficult uh, concept. Obviously, it's uh, colonised by ideologues of, of various different stripes at different uh, times. But for me, I think it does occupy these days quite an important, uh, profound value. How could we talk about it better? Because it is one of the things in public debates that can feel very divisive. And certainly the you know, talking about family policy or whatever it is, often sounds excluding. You know, you're a gay man. It may be something that uh, the kind of social conservative narrative about family is hasn't been felt attractive or inclusive to you. Are there ways that we could do that better, that we could talk about these small units of kinship that so many of us belong to that shape us so well in ways that don't feel those who are perhaps single or don't have children or all these other ways you can do different family don't make them feel like, that's not about me or I'm being told I'm outside the norm. Actually, I've never felt excluded from the uh, definition of family. Right. Um, that, that conservative idea has never really um, uh, impinged on my uh, feelings. Um, but then maybe that's because in my own particular uh, conception of family, it's not really about me and my children. It's more about sort of, you know, where I'm from. Um, and I suppose that, you know, when I was, or my family is very top heavy. Like I said, a lot of great grandparents and a lot of, you know, my, my, my family was one of those um, uh, industrial working class families where, you know, the women all got pregnant at 16 and that was, they weren't extremely long lived or anything. And that's not the reason I had all these great grandparents. It was because they had children very early. Um, and uh, so I tend to think of family as really being uh, um, the generations above you rather than the generations below. So maybe that's why I've been insulated from this nasty um, idea of family. Although, of course, you know, I was young in the in the days when Section 28 was still in force and, you know, pretend, pretend families were, um, you know, not allowed to be promoted. I had very little connection with any sort of conservative thought uh, as a child. Um, my family, I think maybe my grandmother had voted for Thatcher once or twice because she thought that unions were a bit rude. Um, 
but um, or over powerful. But you know, mostly they were um, uh, sort of quite an old fashioned sort of working class liberal left, really, of a sort of you know um, self help and self educated, and um, but very focused on sort of hearth and home as well. Um, and uh, as a result, I don't think the conservative ideas really. Uh, got through to me until I was at university. And of course, by that point, you know, New Labour was in power and everyone thought Conservatives would never be in power again. And so I didn't take them very seriously. Again, the more people I meet now, I mean, you meet more people, don't you? And then you situate your own values and experiences in relation to theirs. Um, I am aware that a lot of the people I was at university with, um, who maybe came from more middle class backgrounds or sometimes more religious ones, um, had had struggles personally um, in uh, what they might have found oppressive about the idea of family. I suppose you're right, right that right wing or, you know, right wing, left wing, is that the right positioning? I don't know. But um, unpleasant anti-choice type political uh, movements have definitely tried to colonise, capture the concept of family in the same way that they've tried to do the same with the concept of dignity. You know, that's always a, a word these days. I'm very keen on human dignity and I think freedom and individuality is an important aspect of that, which is why I value those things. But, you know, nowadays when you uh, say dignity, especially internationally, you think of those big Catholic NGOs internationally that try and, you know, protect unborn children or, um, you know, dot, 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 all of that. So I think that there should be a reclaiming of family by everyone. And I think obviously a refiguring of, of what it means. And that is happening in society. I had a really interesting conversation with my um, inverted comma godchildren, um, because we don't have a word in English, I think, uh, for, for, for that relationship, about family. Um, they're, you know, uh, six or seven years old. And so they're starting to think about these sorts of concepts, their position in relation to the people they've always known, like me and my partner, and also their parents and their aunt and so on. And we had a really interesting conversation about um, the family that you're related to by blood and the family that you choose. Because um, they said, you know, oh, but... Uh, are we family because, you know, we're, you know, we're not related to you in that way? And so we talked about their mum and dad and how they weren't related that, that way either. You know, they weren't brother and sister. They'd met each other separately and they'd come together and now they were a family and they were the family that each other had chosen. And, and, and I think that that's an important concept to keep in mind. So, yeah, I think that family does need uh, to be reclaimed. And what's the value of family? I think it is um, in being that nurturing foundation for the development of the individual personality. You know, I think with with security, with love, um, with that sort of base to work from, I think, you know, the best the best people can grow. Um, and that's why it's a value to me. So we've heard a little bit. Tell me a bit more about the ideas that were in the air in your childhood. Um, you've talked a little bit about this wonderful multi-generational family with a kind of working class liberal lean. I know you went to um, a local public school through a bursary scheme. Well, it wasn't. I wouldn't call it a public school. I don't know. I think it wasn't one of those big ones. It was it was the former grammar school in, in, in Coventry. Um, and then there was a, a scheme called... I was too young, obviously, to be uh, going to school in the days of uh, grammars. But after um, the comprehensivization of the system, there was this scheme called the Assisted Place Scheme, which essentially sent poor children to local independent schools on local authority funds. Um, and that's what happened to me. Um, so, um, uh, and that was a very different experience from the experience of anyone else in my immediate family uh, down the generations. In terms of the values and atmosphere, well, like I say, there was very liberal, tolerant, cosmopolitan, internationally minded um, atmosphere at home. And I think if I, when you say that today um, and say that this existed in this social background, which was coal mining, that was the jobs of my grandparents, you know, coal mining and 
the Dunlop assembly line, all the rest of it, people get actually quite surprised because I think the, the stereotype these days is that that sort of internationalism and cosmopolitanism and liber- you know, liberalism and tolerance is something that's associated with elite, elites and middle, upper middle class, or even middle class, but upper middle classes. Um, but that was not the case with my, uh, especially with my great grandmothers at all. Um, they were uh, very much of that mind from, from a different social background. And I, I think of it in my mind as old fashioned. Maybe it isn't. Maybe they were very unusual. Um, but I think that their, their friends and, uh, you know, co-workers and contemporaries um, were, were quite similarly minded as well. Um, maybe it makes a difference they're from the northeast. Maybe it makes a difference that they're from the Midlands. I, I don't know. But that was their attitude. So they're the sort of values I grew up um, uh, with in the background. I suppose mutual support, cooperation, um, those secular civic values. Mm. Um, and you studied, did you study classics at school? Is that what led yeah. you to go on to and university? Then, so that's right. So then I studied uh, classics at school. Um, and I think that's quite important. The school that I went to described itself at the time as secular. Um, now, while I was there, or just after I left, it redesignated itself as Christian because in the late 90s, I don't know if you remember this, in the late 90s, the government um, essentially forced schools to choose a religious character. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of previously self-described uh, non-denominational schools chose Church of England as my school did. I was gone by then, uh, thankfully, as I see it. Um, so it wasn't religious, uh, my school at all. A primary school, um, because of the ethnic mix in the local area, which was sort of classic, you know, mid-20th century, there had been a lot of migration to the area for the light industries and heavier industries that were there. And so that, uh, you know, in the primary school mix made for quite a lot of ethnic diversity. And because of that, um, it was a classic sort of multiculturalist um, and therefore non-religious um, atmosphere in my primary school. You know, we didn't do hymns. We didn't do prayers. Um, we didn't do nativity plays. I think they do now, actually, which shows maybe how things have changed in, in a different direction. But um, we didn't do any of that. So that was, uh, you know, those formative influences were a sort of secular diversity. Um, and then in my secondary school, as you said, I did classics. And that, of course, um, is a whole other uh, layer um, of um, the values that have informed my life. So tell me about classics. What is it that draws you to it? Because I, I have heard you speak a few times and I think those ideas have been formative for you. Well, I'm glad you asked about that because um, after my family background and the sort of values that I think I absorbed there from mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers, um, I think that the things that I studied academically probably are the most formative. Um, and I, I often uh, think of this in comparison with those of my friends um, who uh, were moulded by religious stories and religious uh, values and maybe Sunday school and so on. I went to Sunday school briefly because... My friend went and I managed to convince my mum that I should be allowed to go, but I didn't uh, get much out of it. We coloured in a lot of, I crayoned in the story of Ruth um, and won a prize for crowning in the story of Ruth, but I didn't find that ultimately fulfilling, so I uh, didn't go back. And the, the, the position that I was in was that the stories that I heard, and I think therefore also on a more profound level, the values that I absorbed were actually um, myths and legends, and that took me into at school the study of classics and then the study of, of classics at university as well. And I think that that did have an enormous effect on me. Um, the next thing I studied at university was uh, Enlightenment history and uh, uh, modern European and American history. So I sort of missed out the bit in between uh, the, you know, the glories of the Athenian uh, democracy um, and uh, the, the growth of uh, the modern spirit. Um, and only recently have I managed to educate myself in, in what it is. So. 
the what I admire about the ancient Greeks, and you can't really say, you know, the ancient Greeks because we're talking about hundreds of years of, 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 of history. Um, but what I admire, let's say, in a more limited way about the Athenian moment um, is this idea that it's an indifferent universe. Um, it's one that doesn't care about uh, people, that just is, you know, a natural um, phenomenon. We're adrift in it. And it's human beings that carve out uh, for themselves and each other um, what meaning there can be, what values there can be. You know, these are things that are, are constructed by people and that the dignity of human beings is, yes, a temporary um, and a provisional uh, phenomenon, um, but actually quite a glorious thing because it is our own creation. Um, and although now we realise, of course, that our morality has a, a sort of biological foundation, especially you know, as we learn more about other animals and um, uh, more... Uh, basic types of human organization as well through anthropology. Um, although we realize that morality has a sort of biological root, it, it, it also um, is a cultural product. And I admire the cultures that produced moralities to do with freedom and equality, even though they're incomplete, right? So, of course, there's slavery in the ancient world. Um, but there's also anti slavery, you know, the anti slavery movements exist. Um, and I think that's important too. So yeah, the ideas of human dignity, the ideas of equality, the ideas of political engagement, and on a bigger level, the idea that in a, if not hostile, then indifferent uh, universe, human beings can carve out a space for, for the dignity of themselves. I admire all of that. And I think actually it did uh, mould my way of thinking. So you had this non-religious, um, sounds wonderfully supportive kind of family and community background and went to study classics university. When did humanism as a kind of movement or an identifier, when did you come across it and when did you decide that that's what you were? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think the, um, so there certainly were humanists in my family, people who would have used the word of, of, of themselves. Um, I didn't think about that particularly. Um, but, you know, there was a, a great flowering of self-description as a humanist in the sort of mid-20th century for, for quite a lot of liberal and progressive people. And then it sort of died down again, actually, and now, only now is it really coming back as a, as, a, as a personal identity and maybe for better or for worse we can discuss that. Um, so th there were certainly such people in my family. I, I really learned about uh, the word humanism and humanist and, and, and what it meant there at school. So we did study humanism in RE, you know, in religious education classes, um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I realized that that I affiliated with that. I, I realized that that described my, uh, beliefs, which is quite a common story. You know, a lot of our, uh, members at Humanist UK and around the world, actually in, in other humanist organizations describe not a, a moment of revelation, but a, a moment of sort of realization that there was a word that described what they always believed. Um, a bit like, you know, suddenly finding that you're, you've been speaking prose all your life, that sort of. Uh, moment. Um, and that, I suppose, is what happened to me. But I wouldn't say it was particularly significant. I didn't feel the need for, at the time for a, a big identifier label for who I was, maybe because I was pretty secure in every other uh, way, as we've discussed. So I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't have those sorts of moments that some people on encountering the term humanist have when suddenly their life makes sense, you know, and the things that they've been told about how they're, you know, apostates or you know that their views are incoherent or parasitic on religious views or inferior or don't make sense you know they suddenly realize that's not true and that there is a word for what they believe and millions of people believe it and it's an idea and an approach that's inspired you know some of the greatest contributions to 
human well-being. I didn't have that sort of uh, moment. Um, but I knew that I was a humanist and, uh, and that uh, was uh, what could be used to define my beliefs. When did it become important to me? Well, I suppose, I mean, when I was at university is when I joined Humanist UK or the British Humanist Association as it then was. And the, the immediate reason, the immediate trigger for that um, was um, the government expansion of faith schools. So certainly in my childhood, um, uh, personally, and I think more generally as a society, there would have been a general conviction that faith schools would be on the way out. You know, their number um, and type in the state system reduced in the 70s and in the 80s. Um, There was no reason to think that wasn't going to carry on happening. Religion um, was then, as it still is, of reducing salience in the lives of people in, in, in the UK. Um, so the idea that suddenly there'd be a reversal of that trend and that against all the demographic change, there would be a reinfusion um, of religious ownership and organisation and discrimination in things like admissions um, and a growth of those things again was pretty unimaginable. And it felt a little bit like, um, I've used this phrase when we've been discussing this before, there's a, there's a great book about um, the Arab world or the Muslim world in particular called Destiny Disrupted which is about what happened when the Muslim world encountered, as it were, um, European success and realised people, intelligent observers within that culture, realised that the unending pathway to the growth of the House of Islam had been stopped and it wasn't necessarily the destiny of the world. And it was a very profound idea of feeling destiny disrupted. Well, I suppose I sort of felt the same thing um, because I'd assumed that, you know, humanism was the way that everyone was going. So pervasive, it didn't, we didn't, might not even need the word because it was just common sense, the wallpaper of Western culture. Um, and it just needed to, you know, continue that way. And then suddenly I got a sense that that wasn't necessarily how it would happen. And that the growth of the good things um, that had been achieved uh, in both our particular culture, but also in a global sense, particularly uh, in the 20th century post-war world of aspirations towards human rights that were very uh, secular and humanist inspired and also inspired also by other uh, people's thought, Christian thought and so on as well. But essentially a shared secular endeavour um, would only actually come to pass if people worked for it. Uh, and so that's why I uh, joined uh, Humanist UK um, and, and, you know, affiliated myself more clearly with the concept. And I think that I have only uh, my conviction in the importance of that act of self-affiliation and then support for that movement has only increased in time. So your organisation is often um, uh, put up against in quite pugilistic situations against religious campaign groups. And sometimes that's us and we've, we've met each other in those situations a few times. I always find it a bit strange because the way the media often sets up those debates is very um, going to, trying to push people to extremes and to create conflict um how comfortable do you find those situations do you in are you are the kind of person who has a personality that actually really likes that kind of debate and argument and finds it a way to get to truth is it something that's a necessary evil in your job how do you feel about it i don't welcome conflict i mean i don't rush into it but i don't run away from those anti- antagonistic situations because i do think that um with mutual respect um by both parties it can be a useful mode of uh of deliberation I think that we've uh, engaged well together, for example, um, and I can think of many religious people um, and organisations uh, with whom I think that's been a, uh, a positive experience. Now, today, it, it's true 
um, that there are groups, and I won't say that these groups are exclusively religious. It just so happens probably that in my line of work, they're the ones you know I come up against who are somewhat unscrupulous um, in the way um, that they advance their view. Um, and I do think that one of the taboos that should be stronger than it is is the taboo against lies. Um, I think people have a place a lower value on truth now than I would like. I don't say that in the past because I, you know, maybe it was always as bad. Um, but I do think that truth, especially in uh, sort of lobbying circles or in religious and non-religious circles, you know, I think that there can, you know, a certain joy in having scored a point against the other person um, shouldn't be allowed to trump the value of truth. And and I certainly, when I've gone into these uh, situations, I always try and remember that, you know, I could be wrong and um, that the other person might be right um, and to try and sort of cultivate a certain level of self-doubt. And I think that these things are important. Um, if you go into those sorts of encounters honestly um, and with a willingness to learn, um, not just totally as the blind recipient of whatever you're hearing, but with an open mind, I think they can be very productive. Um, but I do think that there are a lot of organisations now set up to achieve a particular end. And I think a lot of religious lobby groups are, are like this. You know, they're there to stop this or stop that or, you know, um, reverse this decision or reverse this particular thing. Um, and that's their aim. And so they really don't scruple sometimes at, at how they achieve it. Um, like I say, I'm sure it's not exclusively a religious lobbyist uh, thing. Probably is true of many lobbyists. Um, we always... At Humanist UK, I think are a little bit almost over scrupulous sometimes in the way that we treat our own data and our own evidence, and that the way that we try to um, argue one of our own organisational values. You know, which organisations have these values when they, we come together to think about them over now and again, and how we should be. Are we living up to our expectations of ourselves? Mm. Um, one of our, you know, values is to uh, subject ourselves to scrutiny and to accept. And seek, you know, constructive criticism from, from from outside. And I think we're pretty true to that. And I think that maybe uh, more people could uh, engage in that uh, self scrutiny and openness. I wanted to ask actually because um, it's really if you've if you've had moments where that's under pressure. I know we certainly have here that there's a pragmatic case for going down a particular route with a publicising thing. Um, to kind of push stuff or to spin things. And I hope we've always come down on the side of integrity and actually the, the importance of rigour and evidence. But there is always, you know, when you're engaging in public debates and you want to tell a public story, there are things pulling in slightly different directions. So do you have a senior team that you talk that over with? Do you engage the whole organisation? Does it get easier over time? There is always that pressure, you're right. And I'm sure I've given into it, you know, uh, myself in the past. Um, I can't immediately recall the situations, but I'm sure they exist. And yeah, I mean... I think you're right that in the need in those situations to have more than one person uh, making the decision and discussing the topic, and we, we certainly do that. I mean, do you must have the same? Do you have good people to? Yeah, we 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 thr you know we have some quite intense debates amongst the team and try and you know give ourselves time and think about it. But it does feel the um, I talked about this with Seth Anziska in the in the last podcast that's gone out before we record this, and he speaks about Israel Palestine and trying to stay out of the day to day kind of back and forth and hustle and bustle. Um, and I asked him, you know, I, I agree with the value of that, but when you have got so many shrill, very effective, very quick to respond, you know, hot takes that are simplistic, is there value in playing the game up to a point so that those more balancing voices are in there in that form? And I often, I'm too uncomfortable to do that because I think the rules of the game themselves are problematic, but 
that's not a very coherent way of asking the question, but. Well, it's very clear. I mean, I know what you mean. Um, and um, yeah, face the same challenges. I think we probably all do, um, especially those of us in organisations um, or as individuals, perhaps, who um, have a more comprehensive approach uh, to these issues. I mean, if you're not a single issue uh, campaign, um, I think these things are more difficult. If you are a single issue campaign, then you might even be able to justify to yourself quite outrageous tactics because, you know, your your purpose, um, your mission is to get this one thing done. Um, I think with us, probably with both of our organisations in different ways, it's it's more complicated than that. And so it's harder because, you know, one of our own uh, aims at Humanist UK would you know be to have a better uh, society where people engage with each other, you know, in a more productive way um, and cooperated together. Um, now, do you sacrifice that bigger goal for the sake of a short-term campaign victory? I would say no. Um, and so that would steer me. Um, I guess it does depend on where you pitch your site, you know, where, what, what are you really aiming for? I don't know actually what Theos's uh, aim is um, explicitly. Um, maybe you have more than one. I feel like one of the reasons we haven't encountered each other in those adversarial ways quite so often as we did early days is partly because, well, maybe I get asked less. That's quite possible that I'm just not very good at it. And also I think I say no to it more often because I'm less and less convinced of the value of them because it feels like each side just watches their champion do their thing and then feels encouraged in their rightness. Um, and very rarely would something like actually change anyone's mind on anything, which is part of the rationale behind this podcast to talk to people like you and others who in other settings I might be put up against as an opposite and just listen and just try not to jump in and say, I, I disagree with you or well, this is my definition of humanism or all those other things, but you know, try and discipline myself not always that well, to just listen and to give the listeners a chance to hear you as a person and a human being, not necessarily making the five policy points, but telling your story and talking about yourself personally. Um, so while I'm here, I want to say thank you for being willing to do that because it's different. Um, and I also wanted to say, are there, do, do you agree that that's a helpful thing to do? And where, how could we do that more across differences, both of belief and unbelief, but elsewhere? Um, because there don't seem to be many opportunities. I, I agree with both the premise of your question and the solution that you've begun to sketch out there. I, I, I also say no a lot more now um, to the things that 10 years ago um, might have just said yes to straight away. But I don't just say no. I, if possible, um, I try to respond by saying, by giving a suggestion of the sort of thing that I would say yes to. Um, so, for example, recently, you know, um, there was a, uh, a big debate and how you can have a debate about this particular question. I'm not quite sure, but there was a, a big debate uh, to be organized about the meaning of life um, between uh, some Christians, I think from some apologetics center, you know, this is an industry in itself, sometimes a rather unscrupulous one um, and uh, some humanists in, in a particular locality. And so I said, no, I wouldn't want to come and debate, uh, you know, whether I think it was even a specific sort of weird proposition, like, you know, life can't have meaning without God or, Life can have meaning without God, something like that. And I said, no, I won't. Um, but if these people would like to have a discussion about how humanists and how Christians approach the question of meaning in life or the meaning of life, then I would be happy to do that, um, thinking that that wouldn't happen. 
but unfortunately it did. So, <laughs> so that, well, for, unfortunately, fortunately, um, I, that discussion hasn't happened yet. I don't know how, it's just an example. I don't know how productive it will be, but I think it's better mm. um, to go back. And so I think that's what you should do too. Thank you. Um, I think we should do that. And then maybe slowly, you know, the nature of those events will change the, the nature of the engagement as well. I think that's the sort of thing that you can do. Your question about the wider need for it, I think absolutely. I think that um, people need to be more empathetic with others than, than they're perhaps currently being, especially in public spaces and our, and our, our public life, um, to, to treat each other a little more generously, I would say. When I spoke to Giles Fraser, he said that he finds it completely easy to be friends with people of completely different political persuasion from him. And he gets very frustrated with MPs who say, you know, I, I wouldn't ever be friends with a Tory or vice versa. And I wanted to know how easy you find it to be friends with people who have serious religious beliefs. And I'm going to be really honest, and this feels very vulnerable, but I've often thought, and this might just, this probably is just me, uh, that in another universe, we might be real friends rather than friendly acquaintances. And I use, I take this word friend quite seriously. So it's not an insult to say that we're not friends. I do I'm not insulted. Good. Um, but that the nature of the organisations that we work for and, you know, life, business and London thing makes that difficult. But also that I find, I always find time with you so stimulating and interesting. But because I know quite clearly that the thing that is most precious and beautiful and life-giving in my life is something that you feel a bit repelled by, that the ability to get completely comfortable just isn't there. So I wanted to just put that on the table because honesty is always helpful. And also to listen, to see, to try and I'm always trying to think about building empathy and I have a long way to go on it, but whether actually that's something that people with non-religion feel when they're around religious people, that there is something about not feeling fully comfortable because they might be judged. Or I don't know. I don't know. And maybe I'm projecting. Yeah. yeah. So that's not a very coherent and it is quite a personal question. So feel free to ignore it. But if you're willing. Does yes, that, of course. Well, I'm you? sorry that you used the verb repelled that you said I would well, feel repelled by it because it is a word I used to you once and I've regretted it ever since. Oh, I um, don't. I'm I consciously. Well, think I think about, subconsciously. But... Well, maybe subconsciously. You're thinking about it. I remember it quite distinctly. Um, it was an occasion on which um, we were talking about the uh, beliefs about morality, um, and I said that I found the idea. I was repelled by the idea that um, there was a moral measure of our actions outside of uh, their effects on people, and that you could, uh, instead, as some religious people do, obviously believe. Um, uh, measure the rightness of your actions by some sort of standard outside of people. I found that idea repellent. Um, and you looked quite sad when I said that, I have to say. Um, and it's I, funny because I, I, I regret- must have gone into my unconscious. <laughs> and I have regretted it ever since. I was thinking about it in the shower this morning when I was uh, thinking about coming here, actually. Um, so I do agree with you that it, 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 can, be ve- and it can be very difficult. I mean, let's not uh, deal with the part about Giles Fraser. Um, it's... Uh, um, no need if you'd rather no, not. No, Exactly. I think that I do. I don't agree with him completely, and maybe um, something that he fails to see is that some people's convictions are quite strong and important to them, rather than just changeable um, with the political weather, and that therefore maybe they do genuinely find it difficult. We all know because it's tweeted everywhere now that famous letter of Bertrand Russell to Oswald Mosley about how he couldn't accept his invitation. I think it was in the late forties or fifties to speak on a on, uh, with him on a, on a platform, even in debate, because his views were so utterly opposed to. Um, his that he didn't think that anything fruitful would come of it. Well, um, I do think that good fruits can come from uh, encounters and friendships um, between uh, people of different, even profoundly different beliefs. Um, and I'm sure that we all 
know uh, people who are even married to people with, you know, very different uh, uh, beliefs. I think of plenty of humanists, even a couple of trustees of Humanist UK who are married to Catholics, for example, and, you know, one might regard from the outside that as a very interesting uh, relationship, but clearly it works um, and they have a profound and deep connection. Well, friendship, of course, is a little different from romantic love. Um, so uh, can friendships uh, work? I think I think we would be friends in, if we if we uh, real friends. I mean, if we'd met in another environment. So I think it's worth asking not just what is it that um, would keep us apart from that in our present situation, but what is it that might be responsible for um, pushing us together? And and I I think that there's a, the truth in what you've said is that for a non-religious person, perhaps it is is very difficult to understand. Um, how someone can have uh, so deep a commitment to something that is, to me, so utterly nonsensical. And I feel that really strongly. I don't even think the question of whether or not there is a God is an important question. It strikes, you know, it's always struck me as a trivial one, because I think it is such a nonsense, you know, such a a total nonsense, that I do, um, in in my head even, I try and find ways to sort of exculpate religious people that I like because I'm like, oh, they can't really mean it or, you know, they, they must mean something else or it must be slightly different from that. You know, I tried to find analogies in my head for what they might. It's just like, you know, that they were raised that way. They can't help it. Or, you know, they've had a, a crisis in their life and it's it's forced them to identify this way. And if, if their life had been better, they, you know, they would have been they would have been uh, more normal. I do feel those things like I, I can't help it. Um, I really do. And of course, sometimes they're true as well, which uh, makes it worse for me (laughs) because that's justifying, obviously, my beliefs. (laughs) However, I think that most of the time that doesn't matter um, because, you know, religious people are also just people. Um, We have maybe you and I shared values, you know, though our beliefs may be different. Um, The the ways in which they motivate us and the goals towards which they motivate us um, may be shared. You know, we've both got cultural commonalities uh, with each other of all sorts, you know, from uh, family to country to uh, demography literature. and literature and so on. Exactly. Um, and so I think those I think those things are more important. I mean, it's interesting, I suppose, that, you, that your challenge to me is how do how do I how would I cope with the fact that this is the deepest, most important, most profound, most world shaping thing in your life? And I suppose really. I've done that in the past by ignoring that fact. And I think that's, you know, I have lots of friends who are atheists who I, f- I feel no, you know, dear friend listens to this podcast who's an, who's an atheist, hi Fee, and uh, <laughs> uh, listens to it a lot and gets a lot out of it. And I feel no problem at all being friends with her. And But until we started the podcast, we very rarely talked about what each other believe. And because I don't think she's actively hostile, that's much easier. But I do think in these relations, when we're thinking about relationships across difference, usually we deal with the difference in sacred values or the difference in, Real precious principles by just scooting around them, and, and that, that can be fine. Yeah, that can. That's how you know. That's how relationships often work, both on the individual level and socially. I mean, if 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 in society we were constantly thinking about the things that we didn't share with other people and the ways that we were off, you know, the NHS would never have been created if humanists and Christians couldn't have worked together. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of um, necessities in a shared society for putting differences aside. Um, hostile. Do you think that? I mean, that's an interesting selection of word for you to have used if, if, if she's not hostile do you, do you think that people are hostile I mean I'm would I be am I hostile to um, the idea that there's a God I'd, I don't I don't believe that there is one I wouldn't say I was hostile to it maybe dismissive 
of it. Um, but where do you feel hostility coming from? Not for me, I mean, but generally, when you, if, if you feel it. Well, there's a... So often um, there's the kind of caricature of the new atheist movement, which is sort of self-avowedly hostile and happily, passionately hostile. And then I think it trickles down into the sense that when people engage in religion in public square, there are, which is where you usually are, the kind of um, principled structural concern about, say, bishops in the House of Lords or faith schools. And then sometimes in the narrative, what it sounds like is any hint or smell or presence of religion in my space, in my community is so kind of just almost so annoying. And so like, what are you still doing here? That that can feel like hostility. And I, what I'm interested in in these debates is how much is with everyone who's engaging us, how much is about our own baggage and our vulnerabilities and our insecurities and that deep human need to belong and to be affirmed. When we don't feel our particular identity affirmed, we get defensive very fast and then we get in our trenches and then we go to war with each other. Um, yeah, that's so that I, I do sometimes feel hostility and not most of the time, but the nature of your job means that you're more often than not speaking against religion. And actually usually it's institutions and I don't mind that. Yeah. I don't feel an affiliation, but there's a, you know, I, I pick up some hostility from some people and actually I'm okay with it because I've got okay with debate and difference, but a lot of Christians I think feel a bit cowed by it. I think Christians are in a specific position as well, because I mean, you know, the, the nature of uh, religious privilege in this country is obviously that if there's religion privileged, it's Christianity. You know I mean? Um, we simply objectively are the state in the world that has more Christian privilege in our constitution than any other. You know, it's just a, a fact. Um, and in that sort of political context and social context, um, I can definitely see how people talking about that, people objecting to that, um, can feel hostile to Christians. And I suppose that it's just, we just have to um, tell each other how we're feeling about, about that in different times. Because, of course, to someone in my position, it feels oppressive. It feels unfair. It feels privileged. You know, there, there are schools in this country that my children couldn't go to, um, which your children could, you know, a huge number. There are more school places in this country that children of non-religious parents can't go to than any other um, person of, of any other religion uh, or, or belief, whether in first place or, or down the list. You know, so those sorts of, and that's how I feel about it. And that's how um, people, um, I think, who make those arguments, especially about religion and institutions, feel about it. And of course, it's also the case that a very large number of people uh, in this country, um, whether because they're women or whether because uh, they're gay or, or or whether because they just felt lied to in their childhood, have experienced Christianity as a, um, you know, uh, hostile force in their own lives. And, you know, you don't even have to get into the extremes of child abuse and, uh, you know, personal rejection and so on and so forth to just feel, um, to just know that that's the case. Um, and of course, I meet a disproportionate number of people like that because people, especially older people who get involved in humanism are often uh, people who are raised religiously, not younger people. They tend to have always been non-religious. Um, so I guess that what's the cure for that um, mutual incomprehension, I suppose, is just talking about it more. Um, and I I will think about what you've said because um, it's it may be too glib an answer to say, oh, well, Christians, of course, you know, um, because they're so privileged now and have been in the past, of course they experience any questioning of their privilege as an attack. Um, that's what privileged people always do. I mean, that is true, I think, as well. And I, well, I feel that obviously as a white man all the time. You know, you're constantly 
thinking, well, not all white men are bad in this way because I am one. And so, you know, um, any privileged group, when their privilege is questioned, feels that they are personally being uh, attacked. And I think to some extent, um, you know, Christians would need to hear that said to them honestly and, 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 and they should reflect on it. But I also will reflect on, on what you've said about, um, about how that can feel in practice. I feel a great sadness about this issue and I've been thinking about it since I interviewed Lois Lee, who's the sociologist of non-religious, who's brilliant on this. And we came to the conclusion that both Christians and the non-religious feel marginalised at times and for, oppos- for different sets of reasons. But it's really, it's really helpful just to state that, that a lot of the anger or the hostility, you know, in classic psychological pop psychology uh, is fear underneath or the sense of something being unstable or not knowing where your place in the world is. And, you know, we're in a society that's destabilized, a bit more emotional intelligence, I think. And I'm certainly practicing and often failing at that just patience with someone else's emotional world, which we don't really talk about in public. Um, Andrew, very final question. What is the one thing that religious people in public debates could do better? And if anything, what do you wish atheists would do differently or better? I think actually it's the same answer for 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 for, for both. Um, it's something that I've only become uh, more uh, aware of in myself or more thoughtful about quite recently. Is that I think that there is a tendency when um, we enter any sort of discussion, um, especially with people that we disagree with, um, to assume that the other person knows all the things you know um, and it has all the had all the experiences that you have had, um, and that they're you know perhaps just being obtuse or blind or putting the wrong spin on, you know, these experiences. And I think more and more, I realised that, especially today when the influences on us all are so various, you know, we don't live in a society where we've all read the same books and all watched the same programmes and all had the same social experience. We're diverse, more diverse maybe than um, any society has been in the history of uh, humanity. And so I think that increasingly um, the need to... Uh, recognise that fact as a consequence to listen to people very carefully, um, to trust uh, their own accounts of the, their experience that, that they're giving you, to ask honest questions and to really expose oneself to the same uh, interrogation um, in an open manner, which is very uh, a position of great vulnerability, um, but I think is increasingly one that's one that's necessary. And the corollary of that is that we should all have um, the due... Uh, level of sensitivity and, and generosity to each other that that requires. That would be my recipe for, you know, paradise on earth. <laughs> Andrew, Highly thank you. to happen, therefore. <laughs> Sadly, yes. But um, you coming here today, particularly for the third time and speaking vulnerably and personally, um, it, I'm aware of the gift of that and uh, also of your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.